Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I'm very excited to have my friend Lisa Niver here, who is an award-winning travel expert who has explored 102 countries on six continents. Lisa, you are the travel queen. (laughs) You have that amazing podcast, Make Your Own Map, and you have interviewed everyone from Deepak Chopra to Olympic medalists to best-selling authors. I was honored to be on your show. And you have a new book called Bravish. And I love this book. And I think especially because you were extremely brave. And I cannot wait to share your story with everyone listening on Leave Your Mark. And I think what I'd like to do is a little bit background right now so people get to know you. And I mean, obviously, you went to Penn. What did you intend to do? I'm sure when you graduated college, you did not foresee this life necessarily. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show with you. And I did, like you say, so appreciate you coming on mine. So thank you very much. But I had grown up here in Los Angeles. I'm again back in Los Angeles. And I went to Penn thinking that I was very interested in science. And I lived in the Ware College House, which is a health and science house in the actual quad. And one of the reasons I wanted to live there was because it was multi-year housing. It wasn't freshman only. And the man I met that very first day, Dr. Carl Law, is still one of my very, very best friends. He was my advisor in the community house. And we were actually just in an article in Women's Day about being friends for 38 years. Oh, that's so cute. Mm -hmm. And so when I was at Penn and I was in the health and science house, I was very intent on going to medical school, which was a goal that I achieved. I left Penn and I went to UCSF medical school and I decided I was in the wrong place. I wasn't ready to go to school for the rest of my 20s. And I wasn't thinking medicine was my only choice. That's one of many, many times in my life that I felt like I fell off the tracks And I felt like I kind of was a failure and ruined my life. But in fact, all the times where I've sat in my room crying that I'm making terrible choices, the next chapter has been really amazing. What told you for sure that you were on the wrong track? Mm. So during break in December of that first year of school, I just remember sitting in my room and this little voice saying, do not make me go back there. I do Mm. not want to go back there. And I wasn't really sure what to do. I was like, am I going insane? Is it okay for the voices to talk to you? (laughs) (laughs) I went back to school and I talked with some nice people and mentors and teachers. And eventually I was in the dean's office. She looked at me and she said, you know, Lisa, you're quite young. You seem a little confused. You've been in school your whole life. You like a lot of stuff. Why don't you take a leave? Why don't you think about your choices for a year and come back? 
And during that year, I worked for Planned Parenthood and I taught across the street on campus. There was a children's center and I had always worked at summer camp. Part of needing to get the leave, I had to meet with the school psychiatrist. And the school psychiatrist said to me, you know, do you know that the fact that you're really good with kids is a skill? And I said, no, everybody's good with kids. And she said, no, Lisa, everybody's not good with kids. And I ended up becoming a teacher and I taught all different grade levels and I ended up teaching science. And people would say, aren't you too smart to be a teacher? Oh, that's so, I hate that comment. I do too. So I used to look at them and say, I believe that what you're trying to tell me is that children deserve stupid teachers. (laughs) How is that okay? And often people will say to me, oh, I'm terrible at science. And what I generally say to them is maybe you didn't have a very good teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this has nothing to do with travel. Teaching? Yeah, I'm saying your travel has taken you to places that you would least expect. So when you think about how you got from there to where you are today, what do you think was the most pivotal moment? So what happened was I was teaching in the public school system and one of my schools was closing. And in fact, I was teaching part-time in two different schools, which left me with half of three quarters of a job. And I could not afford that. So one of my friends said to me, why don't you just work at night as a waitress? And I said, oh yeah. I dropped out of med school and I got my master's in education so I could bus tables. And it very oddly, I was working with a woman. So she had taken her then two-year-old daughter to Club Med. And she came back and I was complaining, I'm losing my job. I don't know what I'm going to do. She goes, well, if I were you, I'll go work at Club Med. And that's what I did. Good. I didn't know that you worked at Club Med. That's hysterical. And the reason I got hired is because I was a teacher. I was a highly skilled and trained teacher and I worked in the kids program. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But you have parlayed that job experience into a whole travel media empire. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I like that idea. But yeah, it, it all built. So I had learned to scuba dive when I first left med school And that was part of what drove all of the travel is I wanted to travel to scuba dive, but as a teacher, I couldn't afford it. And so I had gone to Club Med thinking I was going to scuba dive, which I worked in the mountains. So that was challenging. And then when I was at this village in Sonora Bay in Mexico, where the diving was incredible, for some reason that week, there were about six or seven cruise ship employees on vacation at Club Med. And I was like, wait a second, that's a job? They're like, that's a job. And so all the things that were a little bit irritating about Club Med didn't exist on the cruise ship. Like at Club Med, we must eat with the guests, which in the beginning is great, but they ask you the exact same questions, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. And there's some funny moments about how we used to trade personalities and stuff. But anyway, I made all these cruise ship employees. And first of all, the salary was double. It went from making $450 a month to $900 a month. Yay. I mean, in both places, they pay for your travel, room and board, food. It's a great deal. And I started working on the cruise ship. And with the cruise ship, when I started, the rule was the kids program was closed if we were in port. Because the theory was if something happened to the child, 
the parents weren't with you, you're in a foreign country, what would you do? So that's evolved over time. And with the advent of cell phones and being constantly in contact, we used to have pagers. That was so long ago. But I was in love with cruising. I worked minimally. We worked on sea days. We worked at night. And during the day, we played because basically working on a cruise ship is like living in a college dorm, but no one has homework. (laughs) That sounds perfect. So you made a guy. Yes. And I think this is now the beginning. We're going to get into the brave part. So tell us a little bit about sort of the driving force behind being brave and what happened and what made you want to write this book. So what happened was my cruise ship days went on and on. I loved the ship. And then it was September 11th. And the company that I was working for on September 11th went bankrupt within seven days. So I had no job and the travel industry was in disarray. And sadly, so many people had tragic moments, right? Like people lost their lives, families. Mine was minor, but I I did lose my job. And so I came back to Los Angeles and thought about my choices and decided to get back into teaching. And over time, I had a job and I started dating online. So I met a man online who happened to also work in education and was a returned Peace Corps volunteer. So we had a love of travel, but not a similar style. And I'm from Princess Cruises and he's from the Peace Corps. But we managed to start traveling together and things seemed great for a while, but things got very, very bad. My partner uh, drank a lot and was getting more and more angry. And we had taken several long trips and he wasn't happy where we were. And I thought if we went back on the road, that things would be better. And the problem was when we were on the road, the only thing to really be upset about was me. And so things devolved and there was more drinking. He got more angry. He got more violent and it became very dangerous for me. And so it wasn't safe for me to be there and it wasn't safe for me to be so isolated. I needed to be around friends and family. One of the things that shocked me the most about Bravish was basically how it opens. Paint a picture for us when you were on the ground looking up. Basically, the worst moment of my life is the person that married me and promised to cherish me and treasure me and be with me, basically attacked me like I was on the New York subway by a stranger. And I never imagined that would be me. I just was in so much shock that this man who I loved and followed around the world. I quit my job. I sold my car. I rented out the condo I wanted to live in forever and followed him around Asia. And he was standing over me screaming, like his eyes bugging out. It's like watching one of those cartoons. Remember when the eyes used to like jump out? Mm -hmm. And I had always worn a necklace that he had given me the shell from one of our very first trips when he first told me he loved me. And I, I had just had the necklace fixed in New York. And he grabbed it and pulled it. And I remember thinking like, had it fixed really well. I don't know if this thing's going to break. Like, is my neck going to break? Is the necklace going to break? You know, he's having this out-of-body experience. Like, how can this be happening to me? But one of the most poignant moments of that, I mean, thankfully, 
I did get up off the ground because I could have broken my neck or could have killed me that day. I remember hopping up and we were screaming at each other. And I saw, we were in a tiny, tiny town in Northern Thailand. I saw this man coming over and watching us. And I thought, oh my God, it's not bad enough this is happening. But if that man calls the police, we're strangers. We're white American Jewish tourists in a tiny town. And I just kept thinking, if the police come, I think they'll take me because they'll be like, oh, this uppity woman is not behaving. And I was like, wait, who will come for me? And where's my passport? And I was like, oh, my God. And then I was like, am I hurt? Right. Am I bleeding? It's unbelievable. So for you to like live through that and then obviously be able to pull yourself out of this. I mean, when you think about the word resilient, what do you think about? One of the images that carried me through a lot of writing the book was I I saw this graphic and it had seeds and little pieces of grass. And it said that if you yell at the seeds grow or you dig them up, it doesn't help. And I think somehow that's a little bit of resilience to me is that even when you don't believe the next phase will happen, right? You plant the seeds, you water them. You can't see anything happening. You're like, can I dig them up? Like, do they have the roots? Do they have leaves? Is anything happening here? That that's sort of what you you have to have all those pieces. Like, I feel like my friends and family that supported me and therapy and even writing this book, even though it made me totally nauseous, that all of those were parts of what helped me grow and be resilient. That I I had this long history with people. One of the first people I called was one of my roommates from cruise ships. And she said to me, I don't understand what happened here. When did you stop scuba diving? When did you stop going to dance class? Like, how did you give up all these things that you love? And I was like, oh, that is an excellent assessment of what is wrong here. Well, because you were fitting into his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He thought scuba diving was very expensive. I had my own money, but he didn't like that I spent my money and my time doing something that he didn't pick. Sounds very controlling. What inspired you to write Bravish? For me, writing the book was very cathartic and therapeutic. I would sit at my desk and I would write until I was pretty sure I was going to throw up. And I get so nauseous thinking about it and being back in the feelings and I would lie on the floor. Later in the process, I learned this phrase, rest, don't quit. But for me, I really just quit all the time. And I would call my friends crying. And I had one friend who was like, this project is terrible. Quit. And I was like, yes, yes, you are my new mentor. I'm quitting. And then it calls someone else. And she'd be like, that's ridiculous. I know you're finishing this book. I'm like, I don't know. I love the idea of rest, don't quit. But in all seriousness, you were in an abusive relationship. And I think a lot of people have a hard time recognizing that and calling it out. Yes. I agree with you. The fact that you were brave enough to actually stand up and say that this is now done and you're getting a divorce and challenging yourself to really imagine a whole new life for yourself is really, I think, so inspiring. And I think there's probably going to be people who hear this who are also in the process of examining their own relationships and if they are to their benefit or not. So after you got divorced, 
you were faced with this reinvention and challenging yourself. Tell everyone what you did. So one of the things that I finally focused on because of my therapist, we were talking about my eyes and there was always a belief in my family growing up that I was very clumsy and not athletic. And I had gone to the doctor a couple of times. They could not correct my eyes to 2020. And I had gone from the optometrist to the ophthalmologist. And there was some discussion about what was going on. So it wasn't until my 40s when I was getting divorced that I actually finally got help that I had um, what's commonly known as a lazy eye, but I had an intermittent left esotropia. So because of that, I had a lot of accidents with a lot of things and I ran into things with my body, with my car, I had problems. And Dr. Alan Brodney really helped me. And one of the things he said to me was, you know, now that we've worked on your eyes and you're seeing so much better, you need, you know, take your eyes out, do some challenges. And I was like, oh no, that sounds terrible. One of his (laughs) first ideas was that I should take tennis lessons. I was like, Dr. Brodney, that sounds like a horrible idea. He goes, why don't you just try? So I asked my neighbor who is a tennis expert who happened to still take lessons if he had someone to recommend that work with children. Now, I was 47, but my skills were so bad. So I had this tennis teacher who focused really on seven-year-olds, which was probably above my skill level. (laughs) So I, I did the tennis. I kept going to therapy, every kind of therapy. And then... I met someone on a press trip. I was going to a travel conference and the weekend before the conference was a girlfriend getaway in Grapevine, Texas. And Tammy Lee was doing a project 40 things before she was 40. And at the time I was really passing for, I don't know what age, but I wasn't passing for close to 50. And so the whole trip, the whole weekend, every time she was talking about her project, I was like, oh my God, so amazing. I want to do that. I want to do a project like that. And everyone was like, why don't you do it? I was like, oh, no, I I simply cannot. And after several days of this nonsense, one of the women who was older than me looked at me and she said, can you not do 40 before 40 because you're over 40? And I said, yes, that's why I cannot. She said, so do 50 before 50. And I said, I'm not admitting that I'm going to be 50. I said, why don't you do 60 before 60? And she said, (laughs) yeah, you tell her. So over the weekend, I kept thinking, like, could I do it? So at the travel conference, we had all these networking sessions with different destinations. So I decided to test out this idea. So I said to one young PR woman, I'm thinking about doing this project. You know, I'm 48, 49, turning 50, 50 things before I turn 50. And she looks at me in just complete seriousness. And she said, wow, that is so inspiring. Because I'm 29 turning 30 and I feel like my life is over. Oh my God. And you're so old, but you're going to do all these things. So I think maybe I'll be okay. Oh my God. Okay. The fact that she thought her life was over is really scary, but also 50 is not old, but I love the idea of 50 challenges before 50. What did you learn from actually taking this on? Oh my gosh. I learned, first of all, that I love to quit. And I learned about myself that no matter what was offered to me, my first response was, I can't possibly do that now. I said no to everything. And 
it was really funny because obviously I had a lot of angels around me in this project because every time I looked at someone that gave me a suggestion that was perfect and I said, no, they would say, huh, it seems like this is the whole point of your project to do something different and try to get out of your comfort zone. And I was like, do not use my words against me. And then I had to concede that, yes, it was a good idea. I would do it. And I had to get over myself. Like I literally was like, as I was writing the book, I was like, how many times can I say like, and then I cried and then I tried anyway. And then it was perfect. Uh, So many of the things like I remember going on the zip line in Puerto Rico early on and I was terrified. I tried to get out of it a million times and I was in Puerto Rico, which I love, but I was forgetting that everybody really speaks Spanish. And the guy that's helping me in the harness, I'm like grabbed onto him with crazy eyes. And I was like, would you let your grandmother do this? Oh my God. Wait, why do you think your automatic reflex was no all the time? That's a great question. My automatic reflex was no, because growing up, every time I tried something new, I got in an accident. Oh, poor little Lisa. Yeah. But not all your challenges were physical. No, no, not all my challenges were physical. That's true. Because I worked on the cruise ship and I had traveled so much around the world and I was doing this 50 things before 50 project, someone said to me, you know, how close are you to a hundred countries? It'd be really great if you had 50 challenges in a hundred countries. So I worked my way around the world to smaller places. Like I went to San Marino, which is a country inside Italy. I went to places that were inland because my cruise ship experience, I've been to a lot of places with ports. What do you think accomplishing this has done as far as how you see yourself today versus how you were in that relationship? Many times in this project, I've thought if I called my younger self and not even necessarily like my 12-year-old self or my 25-year-old self, if I had called my 47-year-old self, I would have hung up. I'm like, there's no way I'm doing all that stuff. I just didn't believe that I could. I had lost so much confidence. I was really feeling so sad and depressed and lonely and like, you know, uh, kicked in the head, mostly literally. And I learned that I don't need to say no to all the ideas first. I could take a beat and think. One of the other things, which is a, a scuba diving lesson that I, I talk at the scuba and the travel and adventure show last year. And one of the things we talk about, how do you become more brave? So one of my top tips is do something with your buddy. You know, we never go scuba diving without a buddy. And a lot of this most scary things I did, I managed to rope someone in the project with me. And that for me, you know, realizing how much of community I leaned on, you know, coming back to Los Angeles is very important to me to be involved with my synagogue, to be involved with, you know, I do stuff with the pen club here in LA. And um, I've met with students in Philly that we really all need each other. And, you know, it's not, there's so much I feel like in the media about marriage and, and partnership and how long are you together. And one of the things that's come up over and over again in this book, you know, my best friend from college is in the book and, and my other really best friend, Carl, has been in the magazines that we need each other and you got to reach out and it's okay to say that you need help. Yeah. Well, I mean, your support system, I mean, even the phone calls you made during that very critical moment without 
having that sounding board, I think it would have been very hard for you to recognize what you needed to do. Because why would you want to admit that to yourself? That's true. Nobody knew how bad it was. And I feel for people if they don't have people to call, because a lot of the way I finally figured out things were not quite right was listening to people talk to me. And in fact, my best friend bought my ticket to come home. And we had a very long conversation. I don't remember it being quite as long as it actually was. But in the conversation, I remember her offering to fly from Philadelphia to Thailand to pick me up. Wow. Yes, she's amazing. What do you hope people learn from reading Bravish? I hope that people try something new. I think, you know, like there are actionable small steps to feeling a little bit more brave and You know, hopefully most people aren't in such a tragic, not good, violent situation. But if they are, I hope that people feel more comfortable to say to their friends, I need help or this is what's going on. I do have to say, you know, if someone comes to you that they're in a bad situation and they tell you a story, do not say, has this ever happened before? I hate that question. No, I mean, yes, it's happened before. No one's telling you the first time something bad happens because they're like, this is not real. That's a really important point. And I think it bears repeating because I can imagine why that would be a natural question to ask. But at the same time, you're right. So you're ingesting a lot of this trauma and swallowing it until a point where you burst and you do need to share it. Yes, I I feel like the people that said to me, thank you for sharing your story. I hope that you're safe now. What can I do is very helpful. And it feels very like when people say, has this happened before? It feels like they're watching a movie and it's scintillating to them. Like, oh, I know someone this happened to. And you're like, if you're going to make my life worse by being like production value, you're not the right person. Sure. You know, people have different situations where they need to either speak up or get out is they have a terrible boss. Um, Their child is, especially after the COVID coaster, we know a lot of kids are fragile about loneliness, suicide, depression, that there's a lot of people for a lot of reasons, you know, invisible disabilities, long-term health problems that people are trying to figure out what can they do or who can they trust. So, you know, it's like two different sides. There's the piece of like, I'm very fortunate that I have a great network. Um, I've worked hard for that. And it it did suffer when I was with him. But people were definitely willing to, you know, get me back. But also the bravery parts is I tell people, people, there's nothing I can do. Like, you know, if you drive home from work on a different street, it actually makes a difference. Like to your brain, that newness matters. And The fact that you drove on a different street, maybe you find a new restaurant and then you go to the restaurant or people always ask me, how can I get started traveling? Take a cooking class in your neighborhood. Like you just don't know what the steps will lead to. Just like with medical school, I, when I took the year out, I always thought I was going back for quite a long time. I was sure I was going back and I didn't. And crazy things happen. Yeah. I met this person who's, you know, said, go to Club Med, to cruise ships. I traveled. You just don't know. I think that that's the thing I hope people will realize the most is just when it seems like things are so awful and terrible and they can be, and for many people, they really are. You just don't know. You know, I keep saying, Oprah didn't call me today, but maybe tomorrow. Right. 
They should be like, Gravish needs to be in my book club. <laughs> so now, though, is your default setting? I mean, you've done the challenges, right? You've done the 50 challenges before 50. You've written the book. Is no still your default setting? Or have you trained yourself? Have you retrained yourself <laughs> to think differently? I have changed. I have reset. And some of it is the challenges by the end. You know, at the end, I did so many things that I never thought I would do that since then, like I was working, uh, I work sometimes as a teacher on set. And so I was in Toronto working and I went to the CN Tower with a friend who's afraid of heights. And I saw this thing where they had, it's called the Edge or Edgewalk. One's in New York and one's in Toronto. I've done both of them. But when I was in Toronto, I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to do that. And my friend was like, what are you talking about? You don't want to do that you're afraid of things. I'm like, I'm not afraid of that. That looks really fun. And I ended up going on it in the rain. And so it was wet and it was windy. And honestly, the pictures aren't that good because of the clouds, but I didn't care. I was so happy. And they're like, you go first. You're not afraid. I was like, you know what? I'm not afraid. I will go first. You obviously are continuing your passion for travel. Yes. You have your podcast. You are what? The top three travel influencer <laughs> in the world. Thank you. Thank you. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? That is a really good question. I have been wondering what will happen after the book comes out and what am I going to focus on? Mm -hmm. And I know from you know, leaving medical school and not really knowing what the next chapter would be and leaving my marriage and being certain when I got divorced, I was certain I would never travel again. I was very sad and depressed that I would never travel again. And I wish I could call myself and be like, hello, that is so not true. So why did you think you weren't going to travel again? You know, I had been listening to a lot of messages that were negative about me and my abilities. So I think I was just in the swirl of the drama. Right. I wonder what will happen after the book comes out. Like People have asked me, could they travel with me? On my podcast, I've been interviewing a lot of people that have their own TV travel show. That's appealing to me. Like I'd like the idea maybe I could take people with me and they could do a brave challenge. I love that. Put it out into the universe, Lisa. <laughs> so it could happen. I figure if Hoda, Jenna, Reese Witherspoon, and Oprah all call me tomorrow, things will be super different. Yes, things will be super different. Well, I'm proud of you. Thank you. I think it's wonderful what you've been able to do, having gone through this and what you've been able to build. And I'm really excited for you to continue to challenge yourself and do new things. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody gets a chance to read my book. They will. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Leave Your Mark. If you want more career advice or tips on personal branding, make sure to pick up a copy of my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception. Want to land your dream job or kill it in your career? Don't forget about my first book, Leave Your Mark. If you want me to speak at your company or at an offsite, or if you need consulting services, please go to alizalick.com. I would love to connect with you there and on social media. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.